Lord, we do thank you for your presence here. Lord, if we have, if you, we have you, we have everything. And when we gather in your name, you said you would join us. And we gather in your name. We acknowledge you this morning. You are the Lord of the church. We want you to have a name. We want your name to be made greater. More praise than ever to come to the name of Jesus. Thank you for the cross and for redemption. Thank you for hope. Thank you for filling up our hearts, Lord, with your Holy Spirit. For not leaving us to ourselves. For for coming and being a helper to us. We thank you for grace and all that we have received through Christ Jesus. And I pray that this morning, Lord, you would minister, you would speak, you would give life to your people, and that everything that we need, Lord, we would receive and also return, Lord, an offering to you that's honoring in your sight. Each of our lives surrendered up to the Holy One of Heaven. Be glorified in this church this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. We started out in this, uh, in this series on hospitality evangelism, talking about opening up our lives so that other people's lives can receive life. <laughs> we, not, you know, because the, you know the world we live in is very, it's very isolated, very closed off. And more and more as the days go by, you see that people are, you know, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the, the, in-ear, the earbud or whatever, the phenomenon, the idea of total isolation, that even if I'm with people, I'm by myself. And it makes it really hard to build community in a world where everybody is seeking their own. And so the church has to be, in so many ways, it's always, <laughs> it always comes back to the church must be the light. The church has to cast the vision. The church has to chart the course. And what happens is when the church is full of life and healthy and, and relationships are good and we can draw people into that community, then something comes alive in them something they were made by God for that they lost sight of. And it's so easy to lose sight of it in the world because you, because you have this, when you're always being experiencing some kind of stimulation, which is what it is, it's visual, it's audio, audio audible, all these things, it, then you can convince yourself that you're happy. But then suddenly, if it all was stripped away, what's left? And if you and I know, if you've ever been in a quiet moment, our life is very full and sometimes very loud. Because we have, we have a lot of people in a smaller house and all this. And so, and, um, but I also know people who have a lot of quiet. And, and, and it's hard for them to cope. But I have sometimes quiet moments that are unexpected where everybody's just gone or something happens. Or there's just, and sometimes it's usually only like 20 minutes. <laughs> but in those quiet moments, all of a sudden you realize... There are there is there is this whole there is this reality outside of myself. There's God, there's people, there's things that matter. And in quiet moments we recapture, in quiet moments we regather the things that matter most. And it helps us when we get back into community, which is what we are made for, for for, for silence and quiet and for community. But when we re-engage with community, then we have something to offer, something to give. But in talking about all these things, we started out talking about, um, talking about spiritual society. What does it look like? And we looked at the book of Acts, and you can see what it looks like. And it's not, it wasn't just a prescription for what church services were supposed to look like, because it wasn't contained in a church. It was happening out in the, out in the marketplace. It was happening out in society. It was the church 
just being the church everywhere that they went, they were full of the Holy Spirit, full of joy. When they saw a need, they prayed and they met it and they shared the gospel. People were receiving life in Jesus Christ. But the people themselves were being invigorated with the life of God. And so we went from there to last week. And um, just going through all the different pieces there um, that I shared with you last week, but I'm <laughs> just weaving it all together coming up to today. Um, we're looking at opening up our homes and opening up our lives. And I, it occurred to me as I was preparing all these things that, that one of the greatest hindrances to people being willing to do that is broken relationships inside of our own homes, strained relationships. And it's, it's one of the greatest sources of condemnation that people experience in the church today. Because no matter what happens, it feels like in some way or another, no matter what the reasons and causes and all these other things are, it always feels like, to some degree, a personal failure. I have failed in some way. There's something I should have done and didn't, or there's something I did and shouldn't have. And so we have a problem, whether it's a strained marriage, whether it's a strained relationship with a child, whether it's roommates. You know, when I was in college, we brought in a roommate. It looked like it was going to be a good situation. We hoped it would be a good situation. It looked like it was going to work out. Um, and then that roommate, before within, within six months, started doing drugs and started bringing drugs into the house. And we couldn't have seen that coming, but now we've got a problem, right? We have a conflict. We have something that has to be handled. And um, in, in relationships, if you have relationships, you will inevitably have conflict. But what do we do with the conflict? How do we handle it? How do we navigate through it? So I want to show you what it looks like to have a home for the wayward. And what I mean by that is I want us to really consider our perspective on the troubles that come into our relationships. Because I, want, I really believe that what the Lord wants us to see and to see from his perspective rather than ours, because we very often get trapped, sort of trapped, entrenched down in our own troubles and problems because it's this close. Right. It's always right here. And one of the best things that we can ever do is pull away and get another perspective. And the perspective that we need regarding broken relationships is you need God's perspective. You've got to see from heaven. How discouraged does God get over our impossible situations? I don't know that God is capable of discouragement. You know what I mean? I, I don't know how to say it, but God is, he looks at it and he, sa- and he knows that he has a solution. And you and I look at it and go, everything's been tried, so there's no hope. And so what I want us to do is to find that place where we can see, not only is God able to do anything, he desires to do something. And not only does he desire to do something, he has made provision through the cross of Jesus Christ for reconciliation. So let's look together. I want to just start with this, show you in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Starting in verse 9, it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And this is strong language. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, that's those having sex outside of marriage, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, that's those having sex with somebody not their partner in, outside of the marriage, nor effeminate, that's the transgender. You guys know that that's not new, this has been around forever. The word, the Greek word there means effeminate by perversion. 
It means somebody who's taken a male, who's taken his body and emasculated it, who's made it female. Nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Strong speech, is it not? It's what the word of God says. And so you say to yourself, why in the world, Pastor Joel, are you reading us these verses? Look what it says in verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Are these not the, this long list of sins, if you could put verse 10 back up, are these not the things that we look at and go, these are mostly impossible situations? From a human perspective, verses 9 and 10, things we say, I, don't, I, don't, I haven't seen very many people come out of that lifestyle. I haven't seen very many times a person who was engaged in this come out of that and to make a new course. Well, I want to say that our perspective has become very small and very skewed. Because God is the God who delivers and heals and sanctifies and sets apart and cleanses and washes people from every kind of impossible situation. Every single kind of enslaving sins. And there are some sins that there's a lifestyle associated with it. It's not just, I did this, I'm sorry, God, please forgive me, and then I start over. We're talking about it's a whole community of people and all their friends. It's, and to lose it, you lose your world. There are whole other religions are this way. Very time, many times a, somebody becomes a Christian out of another religion and they're excommunicated by everybody that they know. And yet, God is a God of redemption and healing and salvation. He heals the mind where you've been thinking wrong. He heals your heart, changes your desires. He heals your body where your body has been broken through sin. And he offers you new life and he offers you another chance. And it's brand new in it's total healing and restoration. And as Jesus said at one point, he said, I'll tell you the truth. Whoever has been forgiven much loves much. And so in healing entirely broken situations, he, he, he brings a son or daughter to himself whose heart is so endeared to him for their deliverance that they say, where else would we ever go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Isaiah 118, God said to his people, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, you could imagine a garment. You ever spilled grape juice on something white? What do you do with that garment? It's done. The picture is sins as scarlet is the white raiment is completely stained. It's ruined. It's fit only for the garbage. But God says, it's time for you to reason with me. It's time for you to think like I think. It's time for you to get on my page about these things. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. It's a total purification and washing. No stain, no wrinkle, the Bible says, of, the, of God's purified church. Without stain or blemish, without wrinkle. That's fresh from the dry cleaners, but better. And if we wanted to understand what it's like, it's the, when Jesus was glorified and in all of his, uh, on the mountain, 
and it says his, he appeared to them in such a brightness that he, he was, his, his garments were whiter than any human launderer could make them, is what the Bible says. And that's the kind of purity that he wants to wash us through his blood. And blood is red. Blood stains, right? Naturally. But spiritually, it makes white as snow. In Luke 18, 27, he said, the things that are, Jesus said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. I could just go on forever if you want me to. Verse after verse, passage after passage, where impossible things are possible with God. Impossible things are possible with God. His heart is in it. He wants it. He desires it. If you ask anything according to his will, he what? He hears us. And if he hears us, what does the scripture say? We know we have the things we have asked of him. That's an incredible verse, isn't it? If I ask anything according to it, well, how do I know what his, what his will is? The manual. The manual guides you clearly to what his will is. And he probably already stirred it in your heart by the Holy Spirit, and then he confirms it in his word. And then you take that and carry it right back to God in prayer, and you're praying according to his will. So what are you waiting for? The answer. That's what you're waiting for. And I know that people have gotten very discouraged. There is nothing more frustrating than a perpetually broken relationship. There is nothing that pulls a life out of you. You get to, to almost like a sore, I don't know if I want to use this phrase too liberally, but kind of almost like a PTSD. You, you understand like, if I do this or say this, that's going to trigger that person and then we're going to have a fight. Right. And so I'm just not going to touch it. You know, I was reading about David in just in my own Bible study time, and David had, David, you know, he seems to have done a decent job raising Solomon, but I'm not sure about any of the rest of his kids. <laughs> but here's patterns, and one of the patterns that emerged with David was he stopped touching their sin. He just said, go to your house. Absalom was restored, and David said, they said, okay, bring Absalom back to Jerusalem. And they brought him back, and they said, you know, and Absalom said, I want to see the king. So he comes, for, he stays for two years in his own house because the king won't see him. And he finally says, well, I'm going to come see the king. He comes and sees the king. And, and he and David had this kind of like, just like short little thing. And there's never any kind of restoration there. And then Absalom goes off. And what does he do? He begins to lead the kingdom out after himself because he couldn't be restored to his father. And you have the same exact thing happening over and over again. David does it again later on after other transgressions and sins that his children commit. And then, and then what, really, what really troubled me about it was Solomon had, after Solomon, when Solomon was becoming the king after David had died, his brother tried to take the kingdom first. Well, Solomon was set in place by David right before David died. Well, then his brother's afraid for his life. Then finally, his brother comes into his presence. And you know what Solomon said to him? Go to your house. Exact same thing his father had done. It wasn't his, his son, but it was the same sin. We're just not going to deal with this. Just get out, of my, get out of my presence. And it takes a certain grace for us to be able to, especially after established patterns and problems, to face things with faith. Because let's be honest, we've given up hope. Let's, let's be honest, our hearts have been drained of energy and strength. Maybe our wallets have been drained trying to help somebody. Maybe all our generosity was thrown back in our face. 
Maybe there's consistent patterns. Maybe words have been spoken that hurt so badly that you just can't even comprehend having a relationship with this person. And sometimes in your honest, quiet moments, you stop and you say, I don't even like the person I'm trying to help. And yet, they're in my life by God's design. So we have to back up from this. You're, it's this close. You've got to back up from this. Do you guys hear what I'm saying? And you have to get a different perspective. So I want to walk us through the story of the prodigal son. Um, so if I were to start with one thing, and we're going into this, this is just sort of an overarching principle, I think I would say to us as a church and as people who are working through difficulties and things in our own families, I would say, first of all, own your part in it and move on. That is, take responsibility. You know, people, I've heard people say before, oh, I didn't, I didn't do anything, and this is what I get. And I, I'm just going to go ahead and say it to you, because it's my job to do so. There is no such thing as I didn't do anything. But the better thing to do is to go to the person and say, have I done anything? And what if they tell you something that you didn't even know? And what if it was a, what's the word for, it was a dividing moment for them, where their heart changed towards you in one moment? That can happen. They were hearing about, anyway, I won't go into the whole story, but hearing about this guy who thought that his, that his father had, had, had hit his mother. He thought. He didn't know, but he thought. He heard that somehow. And he cut off relationship with his father without ever communicating and found out like 10 years later it never happened. His mother said, that never happened. What do you, this is what this is about? 10 years. 10 years lost and nothing had happened. And so there's things like that where their stuff gets, this is the devil's work, right? To divide us against one another. You said something and meant nothing by it, maybe. But they heard something. And then their heart turns. And then after your heart, somebody's heart turns towards you, you know what it's like when your heart turns towards somebody else. Now you hear it in everything they say. Because the accuser of the brethren is fast and hard at work. You know what they meant by that. You know what they really meant. Oh, they didn't do that, and this is why. And it just keeps reinforcing. It's what they call a narrative, right? A narrative, a false narrative, an idea that's not based in reality. So the first thing I would say is own your part in it. And if you don't know what your part is, ask. Have I done anything to hurt you or turn your heart against me? Sometimes a person will lie to you five times before they tell you the truth. No, it's nothing. Don't worry about it. No, I'm just, whatever. I just want, to, I just want some time to myself. They'll lie to you five times before they finally tell you the truth. So you have to be persistent. Don't ask them five times a day. Because that's not going to help, and you are. But you already know that, don't you? Yeah. But once you know your part in it, make it right with God, make it right with man, and move on. And, I'm, and I don't mean leave the person, leave the relationship. I mean, I mean, in your heart, move on. Accept forgiveness and say, I've done all that I can in terms of reconciliation, but now I need to seek to, 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 for healing to come into this relationship whether it was perceived or real, now I need to see God work and see God move in this relationship. Nothing and no one is beyond healing. And forgiveness is with our God. That's what the Bible says. 
Forgiveness is with God. The worst thing you can do is to compound the situation after you've made every attempt at reconciliation that you can, asking for forgiveness, putting it before the Lord, whatever, work, work it out with God, work it out with man. Even if they say, I won't forgive you, if you've repented, apologize, and now you're doing something different, receive forgiveness and move forward. In your own heart, I'm talking about. Does this make sense? You will compound the situation and make it worse if you become your own whipping boy and just flog yourself with the, with the things you should have done and didn't, with the things you didn't do or things you did do and shouldn't have. You'll, you'll, if you flog yourself with those things forever, that is not God's way. It is not God's way. Luke 15, 11, first verse. Jesus is telling this story and he said, a man had two sons and we can stop right there. The trouble has already begun. So I want you to consider this, first of all. The same man who probably raised them in very similar ways in the same household had two very different sons. One was faithful and loyal. The other was rebellious and ungrateful. Well, how did that happen? Well, guess what? That's what happens when you have more than one person and one in, 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 even in the same environment. I talked about just a couple weeks ago about what happens when, as par- if, when parents try to force all their kids through the same mold. Right. No, no, no. I, I know that you like all this and, and care about this and have a passion for that. But no, this is the, cho- this is the, this is the course I've charted for you. So this is what you're going to do. Well, I don't want to go to your school, Dad. You're going to my school. Try to force them all through the same mold. Make them go through all the same things. Well, you know, I just want what's best for you. Well, hold on a second. Do you? Or do you want replicas of yourself that you can boast about? We have to to recognize these things. Because if you have two sons, you have two different people. And they need to be raised. Each, you need to find out what the will of God is for each one. And if one's going to go to trade school and become a mechanic and the other is going to go to MIT and, and work on robots, you praise and bless both of them because the world needs both. And that's just about occupation. There's a thousand other components, is there not? They're the things that we do, the way we respond, you know, the way that people respond to us, personalities, trying to understand and know them. When we love somebody, we at least have to try to get to know them, right? Because if I don't even try. Though a man had two sons, one was faithful and loyal, the other was rebellious and ungrateful. So that's the first thing we have to consider is that if you have trouble in your house, and by the way, can I just point out that this story, as I understand it, the father is representative of God. And in God's house, there are faithful and loyal, and there are rebellious sons and daughters. Is that not true? And God, God goes after, he pursues the hearts of the, of the rebellious and the unfaithful. And, it, and he blesses and honors the faithful and loyal. Didn't Jesus say, I remember when, this this just shocked me, I remember when you're reading this, when Jesus said this to his disciples, he said, did I not choose all of you, yet one of you is a devil? Well, you know, he didn't even identify which one was the devil yet. So when Jesus picked 12, he picked a devil too. 
and put, the, put it in his group. Why did he do that? John is looking at this whole thing, and John goes, well, Judas used to talk about he wanted to care for the poor, but we all knew he was just stealing from the purse. That was why he wanted things sold and the money to go into the purse, because his hand would be in the purse. Well, we know in that case there was a prophecy, right? The son of perdition, that prophecy might be fulfilled. But the point is, God's not going to let you have your perfect heavenly environment where there is no trouble. He's just not going to let you have it. Because that's not real. He's going to let you have trouble, but then he is going to also demonstrate himself powerful and strong to be a redeemer in the midst of your trouble. Who sins? Why is this guy blind? Remember the disciples asked Jesus, Who did, who, why, whose sins? Was it this man or his father's? Why was he born blind? And Jesus said, neither. But rather this has happened so that the power and the glory of God could be manifest in his life. And what if you and I got that perspective about the trouble that we have now? God wants to show his power. He wants to demonstrate his strength. Verse 12, the younger of them, the younger son, said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Did you notice that he, when the son asked for the money, he gave it to him? Did anybody else think that was a bad idea? I mean, you're looking at this story, and you, but, but here's the thing. It, it, you can imagine what it's like when, if you've raised somebody, and, and this applies, as I said, outside of even parenting, but we're just talking about it in this context because of the story. But if you've raised somebody and you've watched their heart go far away from you, and you can see it happening, their heart is just always off. They always, they just want to fight and argue and ignore and be rude and nasty and all these other things, and you're trying, 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 and you're like, well, what's going on? And your other kid's turning out pretty good. And then the son says, give me my share of the inheritance. And you know exactly what this is about. This leads us to the next, the next principle. Acknowledge the prodigal heart. If the heart is going astray, the body will eventually follow. And so you and I have to be able to have eyes to see the prodigal heart. In this case, the father, in his wisdom, said, it will be better for my son to go off and learn the lessons of life the hard way. It will be better for him to squander his inheritance and experience all kinds of things that I wish, wish, and it breaks my father's heart to let him, but I, that I wish he didn't have to experience. But if it brings him to his senses and he comes around, it's worth it. And so he gave him the money. And God's not going to ask all of us to do that. And and we'll we'll address the other side of that here in just a bit. But um, the prodigal heart, I think we need to be very honest about what's going on in people's hearts because he only needed money. His heart was already gone from his father's house. His heart was not at home anymore. So he says, finally, he goes, well, there's where I can get some money. And he gets the money and then very shortly after that, he departs. But all that was happening was his body was following what his heart had already done. And some people will, will pretend that things aren't as bad as they could be because the person's still at home. But the prodigal heart is just as real as the prodigal body. And, but, and I, let me, so let me just move on to this point. This man's journey would take him through a world of pain. But we should always ask God first to heal their hearts at home if that's possible. If God can heal the prodigal heart before the body follows, we should ask God to do that. 
And you look at what this guy went through. His, his brother comes later and tells some of his dirty secrets and says, he squandered your wealth, father, with prostitutes. He said, that's what he did with your money. Who wants that for their son? Nobody. Nobody wants that for their son. And if you and I can, we should always ask God, please, Lord, please, whether it's your marriage, it's a friendship, if it's your child, whatever it is, please, God, heal this prodigal heart before they leave this roof. Please, God, if you will. So it follows, verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. And when, verse 14, now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So this is the next thing I want us to consider. Entrust them to God. The penalty of sin is built in. So you must, you have that next slide? Thank you. So you must cease striving and managing their life. You actually have to do it. The penalty of sin is built in. You're going to have to trust God that, that sin has its own punishments, but that God also watches over all his children. You have to trust both those things. That if the person decides they want to go on and sin, sin will punish them. So you don't have to punish them and, and remind them every time they do what's wrong and, and, and nag and criticize and do all these things because that's destroying your relationship, is it not? Or any hope of a relationship. We've got these books out in the lobby. This guy, Mark Gregston, if you have a troubled teen, you know, pick one up on the way out. You can take or leave some of Mark Gregston stuff. I struggle with Mark Gregston. I'm just being honest because he seems like he's just, he's, <laughs> he, he runs a ranch where he deals with hundreds of, of kids who are basically their parents drive up and say, here's my kid, see you later because they just don't know what to do. But one thing I know Mark Gregston is right about is if we, tr- if we try to become parents to our kids in their teenage years, the window has closed. And so he talks very much about how you need to stop talking and lecturing and start asking lots of questions in their teenage years. And I do know that he's right about that. That, he, that, he, that the idea being that if I try to just fix him with my words, that's, it's, it's to them it's perceived as completely superficial and unloving. They even see it in some sense as an attack on their personhood, which they're trying to discover. They don't even know who they are. And they're, they're making decisions and making mistakes. And, you know, the Bible says, it's to a man's glory to overlook an offense. Have you ever read that verse? To a man's glory to overlook an offense. So when I make it my chief objective to make sure not a single offense goes without being addressed because I'm going to be the one who brings them under conviction, I end up ultimately destroying any chance that we could have of relationship. Does that make sense? So you've got to find that. If there is a middle ground. You have to find that middle ground. You have to really be before God to know what should I address and what should I not. But sometimes in our own family, we've seen more progress in the things we didn't address. But they knew we knew. Do you understand? So the penalty of sin is built in, and you must cease striving and managing their life. So he went, in verse 15, and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him to his fields to feed swine. This, I'm telling you guys, this is just, Jesus knows what he's talking about, does he not? This is the picture. Expect them to attempt self-salvation first. So now their sins have gotten them into trouble, so, so, so expect them 
to try to save themselves first. And why? Because they're avoiding humbling themselves before their father. And is that not what we do when all of us, when we're in sin? I'm going to try to save myself first. Oh, no, you can tell me about Jesus and the cross and all that. That's fine. I'm just going to start doing good things. No, no, I've got this. I don't need all that. I just take this. And so we try. We make an attempt at self-salvation first. And that's what this son did. He attempted to save himself. He went and got a job. And he gets sent into fields to feed swine. You know, he's the son of a rich man. He hadn't worked like this. He hadn't known what it was to go without. It will be humiliating. This is, and you'll have to watch this. It will be humiliating, as I said, but he, he'll, he's avoiding humbling himself before his father. Depending on the hardness of his heart, this could be only the first of many humiliations, so keep praying. I don't want us ever to lose sight of this. It has been said, and it is true, that many times when you and I try to fix a problem and try and try and try and try and try and try, and try that more can be done in a short period of time praying than can be accomplished in long periods of striving and struggling with someone. And doesn't the scripture say, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but have you been wrestling? Have you been fighting with the person? I mean, we have to answer these questions honestly, or have I been fighting with the spiritual forces that make this person do and say and act the way that they do? Prayer is when I circumvent the person and go right to the problem, because the problem is the spiritual influence. So if I wrestle with the person, we have no, no capacity for relationship anymore. We've destroyed it by in our interactions. But if I pray for them, they don't know it, but God is working. And God is changing their heart. And God is doing things that cannot be done by any human measure. So God will orchestrate the circumstances of their life. This famine was from God. And this guy's job feeding swine was from God. But we need to keep praying for the person that we're losing hope for. Verse 16 says, He would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods the swine were eating. He was that desperate. And no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? So glory to God. He's coming to his senses. It's starting to happen. But why? And this is so important to answer this question, honestly. Why did he come to his senses? And this is the answer. No one, it says, was giving him anything. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? No one was paying his cell phone bill. No one was buying him food. No one was doing any of these things. And isn't it true? We struggle with this because you're saying, well, if I do these acts of kindness, it'll somehow warm their heart and change. Well, you have to know. Sometimes that's true, but sometimes it's not. And if you've already watched the pattern and it's always kicked back up and thrown back in your face and it doesn't, it doesn't amount for anything, well, at some point or another, we just have to draw the sign and say, okay, enough's enough. I think I'm making it worse. No one was giving him anything, so stop enabling. You are saving them you have that next one? I've, I, might, I think I have this differently on my sheet. Oh, yeah. You're not saving them from anything but God and spiritual conviction, and you're dragging out the process. A problem can get solved in a year if you cut somebody off, or a problem can get solved over 15 or 20 years if we keep sowing to it. 
And we have to know, this takes wisdom, does it not? I'm not saying there's just this pattern responses to these things. This is my whole point. Each person is different. And how we act and respond toward each person is very different. But the Bible says in God's word right here, no one was giving him anything. And it's worth our consideration to see if that might not be a missing piece of the puzzle in the, in the relationship we're trying to heal. But keep the door open. And this is what I want you to see from this. It was simple hunger that broke him. And hospitality, the hospitality and abundance of his father's house drew him home. So can you see that? Father's not giving him anything, but he knows what there is in his father's house. And that was the reason he repented and came home. If I stay out here, I'll never, I won't be able to have these things. But if I go back to my father, then I can have these things. But hold on a second. Whoops, I've really wrecked things with dad. So then in verse 18, he says, now he's, sell, he's trying to save himself again. He's still in that same mode. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So make me one of your hired men. How about this? I won't even be your son anymore. Just give me a job in your house and that'll be good enough for me. So he's, he's saying, maybe if I grovel low enough, maybe father will accept me back into the house. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was, a, was still a long way off, why? Because, well, let's keep going. His father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him because the father's heart never lost hope. He kept looking and longing and wishing and wanting. And when he saw his son come, maybe he did have some anger over all the things that had happened, but he saw his son's condition. He's nasty, filthy, his clothes are ruined. And he's, he's looking at his son and all of a sudden he just, something in his heart, it says, compassion, mercy. His heart is awakened and the love that he has for his son is awakened again. And his son said to him, he gives his speech now. He prepped this speech. He's got to give it. Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So now the father has a chance. His son is groveling. His son knows he's done wrong. The father's got a chance. He can let him have it now. He can tell him, yeah, yeah, you, you had better grovel. Can you get a little bit lower? But the father doesn't even answer him. You can see this, not a word. And says instead to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let's eat and let's celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. And that is the ultimate reconciliation. This is the heart of God for reconciliation. Why is this story in the Bible? Because you and I are all going to have broken relationships. You are all, we are all going to have strained relationships. We're going to have relationships that make us feel like an absolute failure. But God so desires to bring them home and to bring about humility and reconciliation and healing. The father gives no lectures, no speeches. 
only mercy, grace, acceptance, and celebration. And this is where you get to celebrate because God has heard your cries. So I'd like to, as we close out here, I'd like to give a word to the prodigal. If you happen to be watching at home, you happen to be sitting in this room, I'd like to give you a word. You can bring great rejoicing to the house you live in if you will humble yourself and come back to God. You can be the source of great rejoicing. And you can be, what happens in your life as you surrender your heart back to God can be a source of great rejoicing. And you need to know that. The family desires it. Everybody desires it. The household desires it. There has been no peace because of the, of the upset in your own heart. And the Lord, as soon as you come <laughs> and, and return and say, I'm ready and I'm sorry, let's begin again. And healing can begin. I want to share a verse with you as we close. This is, um, this is an important verse, one I came across a long time ago. Um, that has, uh, has stuck with me. Second Samuel 14, 14. This was when um, David's, <clears throat> David's military commander sent this, a woman in to talk to King David. And she was supposed to go in kind of as, kind of, uh, as a part of, it was kind of a ruse, but it was kind of what, like similar to what Nathan the prophet did, where just kind of coming in and telling a story to try to get David to see something from a new perspective. Because David had said, remember I said he brought his son back to Jerusalem, but he wouldn't let him come to the king's palace. He wouldn't let him see his face. So she comes in to talk with the king about these things, and as she's talking, she says this. Listen to these words, 2 Samuel 14, 14. This is from the King James. It says, we must needs die, which means we all have to die. And we are like water spilt on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. That's, that's to give us a picture of the brevity of life. If you ever think, I think of it at the beach, when you have like a cup of water or something, you're building a sandcastle, but you spill that water out, and how fast it's sucked into the ground and it's gone. And she's saying, that's what life is like. It's just that short. You and I are a cup of water being poured out, and before we even know it, we will have been absorbed by the ground and we'll be gone. To understand why it matters so much. And she says, neither doth God respect any person. He doesn't have favorites. Yet doth he devise means that his banished be not expelled from him. Do y'all see that? God, she says, life's short. And God doesn't have favorites. And instead, he makes ways that banished people can find their way home again. That banished hearts can find a way to reconciliation. Now let's stand up together. Somebody, somebody in here needs 2 Samuel 14, 14 on the, on the bathroom mirror, on the refrigerator, on the dashboard of the car. Somebody needs to see that every time they turn around right now because, because faith is stumbling. And as we begin to, to worship and sing together here, I would like for us, each one, to take the name of a person. They can live in your house. They can be outside your house. But somebody, family, household, scripturally means those related to you, those connected to you. And I want to say to you that this is a time for us to bring that person's name before God with fresh faith. 
to bring that relationship before God with fresh faith and say, Lord, you see, and you know, and you know the path, and, you, and, I, and I'm so bogged down with the history of it that I can hardly stand to think about it or look at it anymore. I've completely reached the bottom, and I'm worn out, and I'm, I've, I'm struggling to believe, but if what your word says is true, and I believe it is, that you are no respecter of persons, but that you make ways for banished ones to come home, then I'm asking you to make a way for this banished one to come home, for this prodigal heart that maybe it's left the house, but maybe it hasn't. Maybe it's a marriage that's just barely hanging on, but you recognize how far apart your hearts have grown. Well, in this moment, I want you to take God's word back to himself and say, I'm asking you to make a way, and make a way now for the banished heart, for the broken heart to be reconciled. Father, we come to you, and we do pray in the name of Jesus. Lord, I, I just pray over this room, Lord, over this place. As we're all here praying, beginning to, if there's a relationship in your life that you need to see God move in, would you just lift your hand up? Lord, every person's hand who's up you see, and you know, oh God, you are the one who know the hearts of all men. And in the name of Jesus, Lord, we pray that the, that the call would go out, Lord. Even the cross of Jesus itself, Lord, you said, was, was going to send out a call and gather and draw all men to yourself when you were lifted up, Lord. And you've given us, the scripture says, the ministry of reconciliation. How close it is to your heart that broken relationships be healed. In the name of Jesus, Lord, we come to you now and I pray over every person who's got their hand up and lifting up a relationship to you. In Jesus' name, bring healing, Lord God, we pray. Come in, Lord, with the power and the strength that you alone have, Lord. I pray that you would begin now to steer that life back into your way. That you would begin, Lord, in your power, as only you can, Lord, to work the circumstances of their life, God. To, that they would be spun around, Lord, and cause to face a different direction, Lord. And I pray where there's, where there's a peace in their understanding that needs to be healed. They just can't see. I pray you'd open their eyes and help them to see. I pray, Lord, where they have refused to repent, where they have refused to submit their hearts to Jesus Christ, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would come to them and awaken them and call them to yourself. God, we pray for your power. We plead the blood of Jesus Christ in the spirit now, the blood of Jesus Christ on each and every one of these hearts and minds. And God, let the turning begin. Let the turning begin now. Lord God, don't let it be, don't let it be 10 more years or five more years, oh God. We pray that soon and very soon we would see the power of God working. I pray, Lord, that people would be receiving phone calls be receiving emails, that they themselves will be prompted, if you would have them, to reach out again when there has been no connection. And I pray in the name of Jesus, oh God, that you would do this, Lord, and let there be great rejoicing in many households, Lord, as the lost are found and troubled hearts are coming home. And we ask you to do it for your name's sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.